It has been one year since Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. What have we learned in the interim about Russia, about Ukraine, about the West, about the United States, and about the future of geopolitics in the 21st century? Since we are at that one-year mark, it seems like a good time for a review. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. And welcome, podcast listeners, to another episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Once again, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School. Please remember that you can rate and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. You can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte and on the Facebook and Instagram pages of the Robertson School. And of course, the views expressed do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School. So it's been one year since the beginning of the war in Ukraine, a war that began with lots of optimism on the Russian side, a war that seemed for a moment like it was going to put Vladimir Putin's country on the map as a great power that could potentially challenge the hegemony of the United States and turn a projected duopoly between the United States and China into a tripolar relationship. One year later, things look very different. And so I want to discuss some of the things that we have learned over the past year of this conflict about Russia, about Ukraine, about the U.S., about the Western alliance, and about sort of geopolitics in general. Let's begin with what we've learned about Russia. And I think the overriding sentiment that I would take away from the past year is that the Russians are in fact not who we thought they were. We thought the Russians were a great power. We thought they were a first tier or perhaps a second tier military. We assumed that because Russia was a nuclear power, they were capable of very effective power projection. And we assumed that combat experience they had gained in places like Syria, Chechnya, etc. would prepare them well for great power conflict. This is not to say that the weaknesses that have been exposed in the Russian military were things that people could not have seen or foreseen, potentially. But we tended to look at Russia as more of a peer competitor than it turns out that they actually are. The Russians are not performing well in this war. They've not been performing well since day one in this war. There's certainly a lot of fog of war, and and people say that a lot of stuff coming out of the Ukrainian side is propaganda, and, you know, that's even more true of stuff that's coming from the Russians at this point, because the Russians are pretty decent at propaganda, or at least that's what we all thought. But what we can tell for certain is that the Russians thought they'd be in Kyiv within 72 hours, within a week, potentially. And now they are trying to hold on to positions or, you know, maybe make some minor advances in the East. Okay, the Russians are not who we thought they were. And Russian motivations for the war were probably not what we thought they were either. We thought of this as much sort of maybe Russia trying to grab its moment in the sun. But the reality is, it now looks like actually what what this was, was a desperate play of a declining power. I am of the opinion that the Russians were more aware of their own weakness than we were, 
And they saw this as an opportunity to sort of reverse things because they assumed the United States was weak. Europe wouldn't do anything to stop. And so they needed a victory because they need the economic and demographic strength of Ukraine to prop up Russia. And so that is not working out as expected. Russia created an image and an appearance of strength, of success, of being a force to be reckoned with. And that image is now pretty much gone. It's pretty much gone at this point. Does this necessarily mean that the Russians are going to give up? No, it doesn't. That doesn't fit with Russian culture. Does this mean that Putin is on the way out? Not necessarily. Russians do crave stability, although the perception that a lot of Russians have died to no good purpose is the kind of thing that brings down Russian regimes. If you look at the collapses of the last two regimes in Russia, failure in war was a proximate cause of both. Failure in the Russo-Japanese War led to reforms in the regime of the Tsars. Failure in World War I led to the collapse of the Tsarist regime. Failure in the war in Afghanistan, the Russian war in Afghanistan in the 1980s, was a significant contributing factor in the collapse of the Soviet Union. So failure in war is certainly seen as something that can be a regime ender in Russia, but that's certainly not guaranteed. So Putin has now put himself in a very complicated position. And so how will he extricate himself? Does he even want to? Because it's very hard to see a situation where he can extricate himself and look like he's gotten a win and, and declare victory because he set the expectations so high. And so Putin is probably not looking for an off-ramp. Off-ramps don't tend to work out well for regimes in Russia. That is the history that we see with Tsar Nicholas II, Mikhail Gorbachev and others. Putin is probably looking for a way where he can get to victory conditions. And the problem is, there isn't one. There's not a pathway at this point for the Russians to actually win the war by any definition that Putin would, would consider a real victory, which would mean some sort of territorial gains. And they're just, they're not in the position to achieve that on the battlefield. Does that mean that we should necessarily try to give them that off the battlefield? No, it doesn't. The other thing that we should have learned from this, we probably haven't, but the West should have learned from this, is you can't appease the bear. You cannot appease the bear. Every administration since the collapse of the Soviet Union has tried to appease the Russians. The Clinton administration tried to work with them. Bush looked into Putin's eyes and into his soul. Obama offered him a reset button. Trump talked about what good friends they were when they met in a green room. And Biden actually softened many Trump-era policies and lifted... Trump's opposition to the Nord Stream pipeline. Every single U.S. administration has come in with the idea that they were going to appease the bear, and the result of that has been an invasion of Crimea in 2014 and the invasion of Ukraine in 2022. Because if you give Putin an inch, he'll take a mile. So no, we should not give Putin an inch, because that would embolden him. That would allow him to, to claim victory and make him think that you know, he can still continue to undermine the West. Putin has put himself in a difficult position, and it is not the response nor the responsibility nor in the strategic interests of the United States or the West to get him out of it. That's Putin. That's what we've learned about the Russians. The other thing that hopefully we will have learned about the Russians is that the current state ideology of Russia is Russian greatness with religious characteristics. The orthodox orthodoxy, 
the idea of Holy Rus, has in some ways replaced late-stage Soviet communism as the ideology of the Russian state. But ultimately, what motivates Russian leadership is Russian greatness, Russian expansion, Russian power. And really, that motivation is what's behind the sort of ideological movements and is justified in this particular case by the mobilization of religiosity, in this case, Eastern Orthodoxy, for geopolitical purposes. That's what we have learned about Russia. What have we learned about Ukraine? Number one, we've learned that Ukrainian nationalism is a real thing. There was a lot of question about that before the war. Will the Ukrainians fight? Were the Ukrainians, you know, a bunch of the Russian-speaking Ukrainians really pro-Putin and really just wanted to be part of Russia? Was Ukrainian nationalism sort of a Potemkin nationalism? I think we can answer that question definitely in the negative at this point. Ukrainian nationalism is going to have some sharp edges, particularly where Russia is concerned. And this ties into the issue of Ukraine saying that it will not recognize the Russian Orthodox Church in Ukraine, the OCU, as legitimate. Why? Because the Ukrainians view the Russian Orthodox Church as an extension of the Russian state. And there's really not a lot that we've seen from Patriarch Kirill that would dispel that notion. And in fact, that is consistent with Eastern Orthodox theology. Refer you back to the episode that we did with Archdeacon Job Serebrov on the concept of symphonia and the way that symphonia has sort of played itself out. And so that is something to keep in mind. We, we talk about religious freedom in the United States and around the world, but religious freedom when we're talking about the Russian Orthodox Church in a majority Orthodox country like Ukraine can become something of a sticky wicket when the Russian Orthodox Church is perceived as or is acting as an agent of the Russian state. And so the Ukrainian nationalists are going to say, no, this is something that runs counter to our national interest. Because, friends, that's what nationalists do. Nationalists judge religion based on whether it is for or against the interests of the state. Okay, This is a specific message to the national conservatives out there. If you call yourself a national conservative and you are complaining about the Ukrainians and their policy toward the Russian Orthodox Church, then you don't understand national conservatism and you don't understand nationalism and you don't know what you're talking about. Because that is exactly what a national conservative regime would do. It would get rid of any religious element that was seen as unpatriotic. That's how religious nationalism works. Every instance where you want to look at religious nationalism, where it's actually a real thing, right, where it's not just a posture, you know, where it's not just hipsters talking about how they're nationalists the same way that hipsters on the left talk about how they're socialist because it trolls their opposition. But like actually what nationalism does in practice, where it has religious dimensions, is it says this religion is in, this religion is out. This religion is consistent with our national character, this religion is not. And the ones that are not are going to be disfavored in various different ways. That is how religious nationalism works. That's a feature, not a bug. So if you're, if you're so-called NatCon and you're on social media complaining about what the Ukrainians are doing to the Orthodox Church, they're applying your desired framework here. Now, if you're somebody who's, you know, supports a conservatism that's based on ideas of a pluralistic public square, religious freedom, etc., and you're complaining about it, that's a different story. I would understand why those people would have a problem with it. But if you're a NatCon 
The Ukrainians are doing what your philosophy says they should do. Deal with that. Don't try to run away from that. Don't try to pretend like it's not the case because you like Russian memes on Facebook or whatever. Like you need to understand that nationalists are going to do nationalistic things. That's why they're called nationalists. Okay, so we've learned that Ukrainian nationalism is a real thing, but Ukrainian nationalism also has some sharp edges. Is it a good thing or a bad thing that Ukrainian nationalism is a real thing? Well, depends. <laughs> depends on your perspective. Depends on your perspective on Ukraine. We've also learned that the Ukrainians will fight and that they're effective, that they're much more effective in information warfare than we thought they were. And probably they're more effective in information warfare than the Russians are, or at least as effective. What have we learned about Europe? First of all, we've learned that the eastern flank and northern flank countries are taking this very seriously. Where there have been serious strategic recalibrations, it's been in Scandinavia and the Visegrad. Poland, the three Baltics, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Sweden, Finland, those countries are taking this very seriously. Orban is a bit of a sticky wicket because he's got some dependence on Russian natural gas, and also he likes to be the bad boy of Europe, right? So he's, uh, he's, he's kind of playing coy, but that's not surprising from Orban. But let's also keep in mind, this is the thing that's frustrating me in a lot of the framing, especially people on the right. Oh, this is woke Europe versus non-woke Europe. Do, do me a favor, go over to Poland and go tell the Poles how woke they are. That'll go really well for you. Go tell the Law and Justice Party how woke they are. That, that, that will work extraordinarily well for you. I'm, I'm sure they'll love it. They'll love being told how woke they are because they don't love the Russians. This has got nothing to do with wokeness. Wokeness is a narrative that Putin is mobilizing, which says interesting things about where he thinks the Russians can potentially gain inroads in terms of both the US and, and Europe, and, and that is intriguing. But that doesn't necessarily say anything about, you know, the truth of what's happening, right? At the same time that Europe is saying, oh, we have to do all these things with Ukraine and we have to help the Ukrainians and support the Ukrainians and support the countries that are on the front line. And oh, by the way, we're going to slap Poland on the wrist because they're not, you know, approving of gay marriage and gender transitions. And the Poles are like, really? Honestly? This is, this is what you're concerned about right at the moment? This happened a couple months into the war last year. That's not what's happening. But I do think what I just said about sort of the way the, the Europeans have responded to Poland does undermine the other thing that we've learned about Europe. And this isn't necessarily something new, but it's, it's something that's been reinforced, which is that old Europe is pretty feckless, to be honest. You know, I know some people have a soft spot for the Germans and, and the French and, and some of these other countries, but the Germans have made extravagant promises about how they're actually going to live up to their NATO commitments in terms of defense spending. And then that's not happening. The German, Germans have made a lot of promises about how they're going to wean themselves off their dependence on Putin's natural gas. That may or may not be happening. Old Europe is, is going to old Europe at this point, right? And if anybody's going to actually stand up and defend Europe, it's going to be the countries in Europe that the European elites aren't as fond of, right? It's going to be countries on the Visegrad end of things. It's going to be the Poles, right? It's going to be the other Eastern European countries that are a little bit more traditional. It's going to be the Baltic countries that are, you know, much more free market oriented, and, and some of them are also quite traditional. The idea that there's going to be sort of a great power from Europe should be dead at this point. Because if the Germans can't mobilize themselves to actually rearm 
recommit themselves to their military and take drastic steps to be responsible for their own security after this, it's not going to happen. Now, I'm not entirely convinced that from the U.S. perspective, by the way, that that's a bad thing. Yes, I get the fact that that we talk about and there's a legitimate element in saying that we need our European allies to do more and we want them to do more and we want them to provide for their own security more. But actually, though, do we? Is that something that we want? Given the rampant anti-Americanism in the elites in many old European countries, do we want them spending a bunch more money on their defense? Right? Do we want them to try to say, oh, we're going to do all this new stuff with expanding our military footprint. But oh, by the way, we're still going to have trade with you know China. We're still going to use Huawei for our telecom networks and so on and so forth. There are some concerns there. It's not a straightforward, yes, we definitely want Europe to be much more engaged in military affairs. I mean, these are things that we actually need to be thinking about. What are the second and third order consequences of that? It turns out that the countries that are meeting their targets are actually the countries that we have the best relationship with that we can work with the most easily. So, I mean, we'll have to see. Maybe some of the Europeans will shape up as, as time moves on. It's worth pointing out that Germany does have a left-wing government at the moment. There are other parties in the German political sphere. And, you know, if Schultz, who's a social democrat, and his, his Green Coalition partners don't make a serious effort to show deliverables on their promise of military rearmament, maybe the German population does take a different tack on this at the next general election. That's possible. I wouldn't be holding my breath, but it's certainly possible. We've also learned that Russian penetration of Europe's political institutions on both the left and the right is serious, but is not quite as comprehensive as the Russians may have hoped. A couple of examples. Number one, in Germany, the Russians were giving support to both the Greens on the left and the AFD on the right. But that doesn't seem to have bought them as much as they'd hoped. It it, it certainly did have return on investment for them in terms of the Greens shutting down nuclear plants in Germany made the Germans much more dependent on uh, Russian natural gas. So that was a win for the Russians. But I'm not sure that they really got a huge bang for their buck otherwise. In Italy, the Russians were close with Berlusconi and also with uh, Matteo Salvini and his, his party. Which I can't remember if, if Salvini, I think Salvini was the um, Lega Nord, but my knowledge of the ever-shifting landscape of Italian politics is not as encyclopedic as it might have been. But then you got Giorgio Maloney, right? The other, you know, right up there with with the polls in terms of go go tell Giorgio Maloney that because she supports Ukraine, she's woke. I'm sure that'll go well for you. She will banish you from Hobbit camp. But Maloney is a very conservative, very socially conservative leader spoke at the World Congress of Families. She's siding with the Ukrainians and rebuked Berlusconi when he tried to move otherwise. Okay, so there is some penetration of these European political movements by the Russians, but it hasn't been as effective as they might have hoped. What have we learned about the United States? A couple of things. One, I want to give the Biden administration two cheers. Certainly not two and a half, maybe one and a half, one and a half to two cheers for the way they handled Ukraine in the sense that they actually have prioritized making sure that Ukraine gets lethal military aid. Granted, they always hem and haw and sort of worry about escalation for a long time and then eventually decide that it's not going to be escalatory and then eventually give the Ukrainians what they say they need. But they have been committed to that. And that's positive. But 
only two and a half or one and a half to two cheers because they have been very slow. They have not made an affirmative case. They've not attempted to mobilize the support of the American people in a broad sense and explain clearly what our objectives are, what we're doing and how it sort of fits into a broader grand strategy. And they've been over-reliant on sanctions to achieve their goals. So what we basically learned is that Democrats are still Democrats. They're uncomfortable with the use of American power. They're over-reliant on economic power and soft power and things like sanctions. And they are not capable of making a coherent case for American interests and how they can be served. Because I'm not sure that they have the underlying philosophy there. I'm not sure that they have an underlying belief that the exertion of American power is actually a good thing. That being said, Democrats are still Democrats, but there is at least some understanding that certain things are in the American interest and you should do them anyway. And so they are, they are kind of getting there. Slowly, reluctantly, uncomfortably, but they're getting there. We've also learned that the future of the Republican Party in terms of foreign policy is not as clear-cut as we thought. And nobody really knows what the consensus opinion of the Republican Party on foreign policy is, and whether there is one, and whether that's something that's shifting or not. The assumption people are making is that there's a shift. I would caveat that. I, I would be cautious about, about that, about saying that there definitively is a shift. We could be looking at a realignment where the Republican Party is becoming a more isolationist, non-interventionist party, but there are a couple of caveats for that. One, the foreign policy of your political opposition is always unpopular. You're always much more willing to throw brickbats at the opposition in terms of politics. Foreign policy, you know, partisanship used to stop at the water's edge. That really stopped in the 60s. Hasn't been true since then. And it's become more, much, much less true over time. Okay, so some of the opposition that you're seeing, I think, from Republicans on Ukraine is because Biden is president and everything Biden does is bad. That kind of reflexive partisanship is, is not particularly intellectually sophisticated and not particularly useful. I will acknowledge that. Nor was it particularly intellectually sophisticated or particularly useful when the Democrats did the exact same thing from 2016 to 2020, where it didn't matter whether Trump was doing something that was a complete contradiction of what he'd done the day before that they said was bad, but everything Trump did was bad. So that has intensified. And, and what we tend to see with the partisanship is this sort of rampant escalation where one, one side does something and then the other side ex escalates it to the next level. And so we shouldn't be surprised that Republicans are more in the everything Biden does is bad automatically framework in some ways. They're, they're escalating to where the Democrats were under Trump, and in some ways they may be escalating beyond that. But there certainly are voices in the Republican Party now that are openly courting this sort of non-interventionist approach and are openly trying to sort of advocate for a decrease in the use of American power abroad. And so there used to be a, a consensus that sort of Republicans were hawkish internationalists in the sense that Americans believed in the preservation of American power as a guarantor of the rules-based international order, of global free trade, of global peace and security, but they believed in it in a way that was more muscular than Democrats. They were much more open with open to and comfortable with the idea that military force was part of that equation. 
So we used to be talking about kind of a difference of degree. Democrats th- uh, thought you could do everything with, you know, sanctions and lollipops. And Republicans thought you could use some smart bombs as well, right? Or, or some, some other forms of military power. And then there was a contingency within the Democratic Party that also just thought U.S. power abroad is bad. Now, the non-interventionist side on the Republican side, as it's emerging, is more complicated. There are a couple of different strands that are not necessarily mutually compatible. Some will say, we need to do less abroad because we need to focus that money here. That's a very cl- that's a classic bipartisan non-interventionist instinct. Why are we spending all this money in foreign policy instead of spending it in the United States? There, there are counter arguments to that. It's not as strong of a policy argument as it looks like on face value when you actually get into dollars and cents. Most people overestimate, for example, the, the foreign aid budget by a factor of 1,000 to 10,000. What I mean by that is most people think that the foreign aid budget is 5 to 10% of the U.S. budget, and it's actually, one, it's actually 0.5%. So it's one half of 1% is what we spend on foreign aid. Most voters, if you ask them, think it's closer to 5% or 10%. Okay? So because of that, there's an assumption that if we just took all that 5 or 10, if you, took, if you were spending 5 to 10% of your budget on foreign aid, and you said we're going to reallocate that to domestic priorities, it might make a difference. If you can do that with 0.5% of the U.S. budget, it's it's a drop in the bucket. It would pay for like for Social Security for like 20 minutes. Okay, that's don't don't quote me on that because that's an exaggeration for the for the purpose of making a point. But yeah, it, it's it's not it's a drop in the bucket. Same goes for the Ukraine. And well, if we just instead of sending all this money on Ukraine, we should you know fix the border. You couldn't. You could maybe build, you know, a, a chunk of the border wall, a very small chunk of the border wall for the amount that we're spending on Ukraine. We're not spending a lot of money in terms of overall looking at the U.S. federal budget, looking at the U.S. defense budget, etc. It's it's not a ton of money. And oh, by the way, a lot of the money that we're spending is, I hate to say it, creating jobs in the United States because new weapons are being ordered, new ordinance needs to be ordered, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. A lot of that stuff is made here. So... Yeah, that, there's a misunderstanding there, but that's a common argument. That's not necessarily an America is bad argument. I would call that sort of pearls before swine non-interventionism. We shouldn't be casting our pearls before swine. We should be, we should be, you know, keeping that money at home. But then there's also on the right a new non-interventionism that says, no, America's use of power is bad. And a lot of this tends to be social conservatives who are focusing on, well, America is, you know, spreading LGBTQ plus ideology, trans ideology around the world. And this taints every aspect of American foreign policy. And, you know, America's spreading abortion and, and all sorts of sort of liberal values. And this taints every aspect of American foreign policy. Now, I will say a couple of things about that. Number one, the fact that we're doing those things is dumb and counterproductive and doesn't serve the national interest and we should stop. And it's not actually helping the people that they claim to help. It's more about virtue signaling to a domestic audience or even virtue signaling to an internal audience within the State Department of, of people, you know, and, and other elements of the foreign policy establishment of people feeling like they're doing good things with this, then it is actually about accomplishing anything substantial or significant. And in many ways, it does hinder U.S. national interests. Okay, so I'm not going to disagree with that. But let's also keep in mind that it's a, that is a, a percentage of the foreign aid budget, which we already mentioned is pretty small, that we also do a significant amount of work promoting religious freedom internationally 
and protecting Christians from being persecuted. So if you're a social conservative, you should probably not want Christians in other countries to die. And if the U.S. stopped doing things abroad, more Christians would die. That is undeniable. That's even true under the Biden administration because the U.S. actually considers international religious freedom to be something that is important and tries to advance it. And that keeps our, our fellow believers, our co-religionists, from dying around the world. So that actually does matter. And so all in all, what I would say is those are valid concerns, but they're concerns that call for a reform rather than for disengagement. In other words, you are right in pointing out that those things are bad. The solution is to stop doing those things. It's not actually a prima facie argument that as a result of this, that we should just pull back and never do anything abroad and not spend any money on foreign aid and not do anything with defense and you know never get involved in any foreign conflicts and just sort of let tyrants do whatever the tyrants feel like doing. That's not actually advancing social conservatism. And it's going to, again, having looked at a lot of this religious freedom stuff, having spent years and years in, enmeshed in studying that and, and looking at it, if the U.S. backs off, it's not happening. It's not happening. And that would be bad. Very bad for many people in many different ways. Okay, so what we've learned is that there's now a bipartisan foreign policy debate between what I would call muscular internationalists, hawkish internationalists, we will say, dovish internationalists, and the non-interventionists on both the left and the right who, let's say, pearls before swine, non-interventionists, and ugly America non-interventionists. Okay, so that's a very comp it's a much more complicated debate. And so what basically what it means is that there is no foreign policy consensus. And so part of the reason why there has not been a clearly articulated grand strategy on Ukraine and why there's no direction, part of the reason is because the Biden administration, its instincts are toward the ugly American non-interventionist side because all these people worked in the Obama administration and that was the default position. Uh, ugly American non-interventionists, or because of the history of ugly, uh, ugly Americanism, we should just only use soft power and, and try to get people to love America again and, and have nice feelings about us. That's their instinct. That's their operating system. And now they've put, been, been forced by circumstance to take more of a muscular interventionist line, and they're uncomfortable with it, and so they can't articulate it. Ron DeSantis recently issued a statement on Ukraine that was extremely hard to parse, seems like he's saying maybe, you know, we should spend less effort on Ukraine, but also, you know, Russia's a third rate power and, you know, Russia's bad, but also maybe we don't need to spend as much there. And like, it was, it was very careful tap dancing there because there's not a consensus and where there's not a consensus, look, most politicians are going to go where they think the voters are. And if they don't know where the voters are in foreign policy, they're going to tap dance around until they can try to find it. The 2024 Republican primary is going to be interesting in this regard. It may provide clarity on where the party is in foreign policy. It probably won't, though, because the other thing to always remember with foreign policy is that the American people care a heck of a lot less than most people think about foreign policy. Bottom line, what we have learned in the past year is that we are probably not headed for multipolar great power competition. One of two outcomes seems plausible. One is a long-term bipolar competition between China and the United States with Russia as a weak third player that might be able to cause some shenanigans on the, on the edges, but really they're not a player. They're not a peer. They're a junior partner in the China axis, if, if that's the role they decide to take. 
or they may try to sort of triangulate themselves into a position of greater relevance if there's different leadership. It's hard to see Putin pulling that off. But we're probably not headed for multipolarity. We're either headed for a bipolar Cold War, or if China follows the same, a similar trajectory of Russia, then we're actually, what we're actually headed for is a position where the U.S. is still the hegemon, but is a weaker hegemon than it was previously. It's not as clear-cut that the U.S. is a hyperpower, but it is a definitely first among equals of the superpowers, and the emphasis would be on first rather than equals. Okay, those are the two possibilities. There's a lot that we don't know about China. And probably what's happened with Russia should lead us to question some of our assumptions about China. Is China actually a rising power or declining power? Finally, people are coming around to the idea that China may be looking at a possible decline, and that's what's pushing some of their aggressiveness. Because declining powers can be quite aggressive in terms of, in terms of trying to preserve their position. If you think that you're a rising power, you're going to be less aggressive because you think you have time. Okay, so as we see China making more aggressive moves, is that because they think that they've got a limited window? And if that's the case, then what we're actually looking at is we have a very short-term China problem that's got to be managed within the next five to 10 years and has a real chance of escalating to war in that time period. But if we can make it through that window with Taiwan still intact, you know, then, then we may be in a less dangerous position. Okay, if it's a rising China scenario then we're probably looking at a multi-decade bipolar Cold War again. Yay. So there's a lot that we don't know about China, but what we do know is that Russia is going to be less of a player than we had previously thought. That's significant. That's going to have a significant impact on the geopolitics of the 21st century because we're not necessarily talking about great power competition in the same way that we thought, where it's multi-power and there's multi-polarity and there's all these different countries and you know it's, it's anybody's game. If the Russians can't exert their will on their periphery, on an area that they have generally regarded as their periphery, to the same degree that they did previously, it's not even clear they're a regional power at that point. It doesn't mean that they're not dangerous. Declining powers are very dangerous, particularly powers that have been exposed as weaker than expected. Perception of weakness tends to make countries lash out in ways that are unpredictable. But the response to that needs to be firmness, consistency, and clarity. And that's what's been lacking, unfortunately, from, from Biden administration. Their policies have not necessarily been bad, but part of policy is also communication. Both to the American people and to their allies and adversaries, they've not done a very good job of communicating what the policy is or should be. So that's where we stand. We're probably not going to see a res resolution of this in the next six months to a year. And if we do, it would be a sudden and rapid Russian collapse, which some, some people are talking about. I think that's not... As likely, a sudden and rapid Ukrainian or Western collapse is also not going to happen. And I think whichever Republican wins the 2024 nomination, if they end up then winning the presidency in 2024, is going to be faced with the reality of the situation in Ukraine and is unlikely to significantly de-escalate American participation and American involvement. Because America is not heavily involved as is, and the ways in which we are involved are extremely cost-effective if we understand Russia as a geopolitical adversary. And if we don't understand Russia as a geopolitical adversary, then frankly, we need to go back to school. Because the Russians aren't particularly hiding that they see themselves as a geopolitical adversary of the United States. It's always interesting, it's always informative and important 
when you are looking at what other countries say, to look at not only what they're saying to Western audiences, where Putin is saying, poor, poor, pitiful me, the U.S. is evilly expanding NATO and encroaching on my borders, and this is terrible, right? But then listen to what Putin says to his own people at the outside of the Ukrainian war, where he says, look, Ukraine's not a country. It's part of Russia, and we're just restoring our natural borders. And all Russian-speaking people naturally fall under the sovereignty of the Russian state everywhere. That's a very significant difference from, oh, woe is me, NATO's expanding. That's more, all right, it's time for us to expand. These areas naturally belong to us. Anytime you're claiming that territory that belongs to your neighbors should naturally and rightfully belong to you, I think it's hard to make the argument that you're the defensive power in that situation. If there's a treaty that says this territory belongs to Ukraine, and then you're like, no, actually, we think it should belong to us, you're, you're the aggressor. That's, that's how that works. And there are treaties, there are recognitions of sovereignty that Russia has extended that they are now violating. We'll see how all of this plays out. I would I would expect that we will still be talking about this in a year. And I would not have I would not expect that in the next year the Russians are going to make a whole lot of progress. That doesn't necessarily mean that Ukraine will push them further back, but I would not expect massive Russian successes in this year. Something would have to massively change. And it's hard to see what factor that could even be for the Russians at this point. All right, that's going to be a wrap for this episode. Please remember to rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and of course, on all of your places where you go to get podcasts. And for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off. <laughs>